We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to Setting the Pace. Now, here's your hosts, Alex Golden and Michael J. Fauci. Pacer Nation, what is going on? Welcome back to another episode of Setting the Pace. And joining me right now, not only is it Michael J. Fauci, but it is the newly engaged Michael J. Fauci. Congratulations, man. That is true. Much appreciated, Alex. I gave my girl the coveted ring that Reggie Miller and those Pacers have been searching for for so long so it was a, a happy weekend a lot of surprises up to the sleeves you would have thought these sleeves were pretty baggy with the tricks that i was pulling out but uh <laughs> it, it was nice i had uh, her parents came down from new york my parents came down from new york they were stashed in the bushes i had a photographer that was stashed she had no idea about you know brought her out to where we had our first date i mean it was uh there was a lot of stuff going on and i pulled it off Pulling out all the stops, Fachi. Well, ladies, if you heard that and you were like, man, I want a guy like that. Sorry, Fachi's off the market. And I got to say, Fachi, in those pictures, you got Amy, a.k.a. Babe. That ring was huge. Man, you must be rolling in the dough over there. Well, you know, our podcast has been killing it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly where you got the money from for that one. Yeah, and uh, just a lot of hard work saving up and trying to give her the ring that uh, Babe deserves. So uh, definitely appreciate the kind words. Hope no one was blinded. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a happy weekend for sure. Absolutely, man. Well, we are so happy for you. I know I posted a picture for you on Instagram just so all of our followers would know about the engagement. I hadn't seen you post anything on Twitter, so... I didn't want to do that. I felt like that was not appropriate, but I am very happy for you. I know how exciting it can be to get married and, and go through all that. So you're going to have a blast, and uh, I'm, I'm so happy for you guys. But let's move on to our topic of the day. Of course, Chris and I will be joining us in the second uh, half hour of our show. But to start things off today, we're going to look at some NBA draft prospects that, you know, if the Pacers were to make a trade, I did hear today I got somebody uh, tagging me in a tweet saying Sam Vecini said the Pacers have kind of been feeling out um, different first-round picks. Now, I don't know what that means. I'm not sure if that's like uh, just, you know, GM talk and stuff getting back. But we're going to look at different guys in different tiers and just kind of give our thoughts on players that we have our eye on. So, Fachi, I'll let you go first. Anybody in your top tier that you're really interested in? Well, there's a couple. And obviously, hey, look, this isn't to say that the Pacers can land, you know, the number one pick or anything of the sort. But – say the Pacers were to, you know, climb in that top three. I mean, I'm going to start at the top. I mean, if the Pacers can find a way to get Anthony Edwards, I think you have to strongly consider it a guy that has actually been compared to, you know, Oladipo at times, but I do think has, you know, a, a bit maybe, and I'd say maybe more promise. I feel like in that 2013 draft that Oladipo was part of, you know, going number two, I, I don't think was looked at as a home run by any means, 
when we're talking about a powerful guard, he's got um, elite length and explosiveness, a three-level score, a very capable shooter. So this is someone who, has, like I mentioned, has the length, has the quickness. I'm very curious to see how, you know, how everything translates, you know, because there are still questions. And when, when you're talking about a draft like this, where so many underclassmen, and basically when I say underclassmen, I mean freshmen with no NCAA tournament, there's probably a bit more questions than answers. But I like the idea of maybe an Anthony Edwards compared to a big man, you know, up front. So if the Pacers can somehow get into a top three, Anthony Edwards is someone I have my eyes on. Yeah, I like Anthony Edwards a lot. That'd be my pick if the Pacers got up there, if he's available. Now, I think it's kind of still like the top three of the top three. I heard Chad Ford talking the day I was doing some research, and, and basically he was saying, like, the top three are going to be LaMelo Ball, James Wiseman, and more than likely Anthony Edwards. And he said that he thinks LaMelo Ball is the best player in this draft and has the highest potential. Um, James Wiseman really seems to make a lot of sense for the number one pick, depending on who gets it. I mean, I don't know if Minnesota would want him, but, I mean, I, I saw Kevin O'Connor today in his draft had them, uh, the Hornets jumping the second overall pick from Golden State and s- trading with the Timberwolves to get him. So, you know, it, it's just kind of hard to tell. But I like Anthony Edwards. I, I think another guy that a lot of Pacer fans have brought up to is, I can't pronounce his last name very well, but Denny uh, Abdija or whatever mm-hmm. you say it, from Israel. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think he makes somewhat of sense for the Pacers if they do indeed get a top three pick just because of his ability, you know, because he kind of reminds me of Tony Kukoc. You know what I mean? Like, and I like it. And I would say here, um, it looks like Kevin O'Connor compares him to Danilo Gallinari and Dario Saric. Um, You know, I mean, not like this draft isn't like screaming off superstars, but I just feel like a six foot nine guy that's a really good shooter and could really maybe in really good playmaker has a good feel for the game, interior scoring as well. I feel like him and Sabonis being European players could really – flourish off one another I I like that matchup but I think with pure upside though Anthony Edwards makes a lot of sense and that is all I really have for my top three because I I don't think Pacers really make any sense I mean I don't think Wiseman or uh, LaMelo Ball makes any sense for them in the top three I completely agree I'm not going to knock the talent on LaMelo Ball he just feels like one of the furthest guys that I could imagine in a Pacers uniform I just can't really see it happening when you talked about Denny that's someone that I also had in my like top three-ish tier, you know, three to five for sure. Um, Big enough to play power forward, has the ball handling, creativity, playmaking skills that you're looking for. Um, I, you know, obviously, given that he played in Israel, didn't really get to see much of him other than his actual best of the best highlights. So that's something where there still remains a bit of a, a bit of a question mark. But if the Pacers are able to get into that top five tier, so instead of the, the top one to three, Obi Toppin is someone who his his draft stock is rising right now. Six uh, nine power forward, national player of the year right now. I feel like he's got a very versatile offensive skill set that I'd like to see a, a bit more of. I think that Dayton was one of those teams that was probably going to go on a run in the tournament, and I think that Obi would have gotten a lot more coverage than what we actually saw. You know, Dayton was not a team that's really on a bunch of uh, you know prime time games. Um, he's not the most polished, you know, perimeter player. You know, you're still wondering, you know, at 6'9", yeah, he's a power forward. Can he play, you know, center? You don't really want to see that. I think in college he was able to play the five a bit more. But, you know, that's college. That's also playing at Dayton. You know, so I'm curious there. One of the things that kind of works against him in a time like this as a redshirt sophomore, 22 years old, I know nowadays you, you feel like 22 is too old when back then you was perfectly fine. So I actually like a guy who's a bit more experienced or a little bit older. So I do like the idea of Obi, you know, being around a top five pick of the Pacers were able to climb there. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it was interesting today. Kevin O'Connor, I guess, in his article talked about how Atlanta might want to trade number six for a veteran. They've got plenty of cap space. I'm not going to say that Oladipo for number six would be, you know, something the Hawks would look at, but it's, you know, interesting to think about. And I know the Pacers probably don't need another guard, but I really like Tyrese Halliburton from Iowa State. He uh, he averaged 15.2 points a game, 5.9 rebounds, 6.5 assists, had an effective field goal percentage of 61.1. He's six foot five with a six eight wingspan. He's 20 years old. And uh, on Kevin O'Connor's mock board, uh, mock draft on his big board, he said, genius playmaker who can be a major building block of a contending team. Uh, shades of 
Shea Gilgis, Alexander, and Sam Cassell. I just think that that makes perfect sense for the Pacers. Somebody like that. Um, I think he could start next to Malcolm Brogdon if they were to trade Oladipo. So, I mean, and I, and I think Chad Ford actually had him in his top three or four. So, I, yeah, I think it was number four where Chad Ford had him. So I don't know where exactly he's going to fall, but I think that he's in that four to eight range. I, I wouldn't – I would be surprised if he drops any lower than that. But I just think with playmaking, good off-ball defender, and a great feel for the game, that's something the Pacers really could use. And that's why I really like Tyrese Halliburton. Love me some Halliburton. I had him in my 5 to 10 uh, range, so it pretty much goes similar to what you said of 4 to 8. You know, like I mentioned, some of the notes that I was digging up on him, they believe he does have the highest basketball IQ of any player in the draft. Very creative passer, a career 43% three-point shooter. So, you know, you're getting someone that already feels, you know, very talented. Uh, one of the knocks on him was only attempted 71 free throws in 57 college games. So there's a little bit of a knock there, but at the same point, there's a knock on just about everybody right now. I mean, there, there really is. There, there is no transcendent player right now that everybody feels comfortable with. But, you know, they do project him to be kind of a, a good 3 and D guard. You know, he can handle the ball. He can also be a secondary guard option, uh, ball handler. So I do love me some Hal Burton. Uh, for one of my guys right now um, that I'm interested in, and maybe I, I kind of like the unknown a little bit, Killian Hayes, 6'5 point guard from France. Kevin O'Connor, which you mentioned before, had him as one of his top-ranked uh, players, as well as, you know, obviously, point guard. Um, and some drafts, though, he's not even cracking the top ten. Yeah. So, for, for Killian, it's all over the place. You know, they believe that he'd be a very big play, playmaker in the NBA at 6'5". I like the, I like the, the size at point guard. Um, they believe he's got three-level scoring potential. Um, you know, they, they like his mid-range game. But, you know, you're still wondering. I mean, he's played... 72 pro games overseas, so you definitely like that. Someone a little bit more experienced. Um, but there are, there are holes in just about everyone's game right now. So defensively, they're wondering if that's really going to happen. Is that going to be a thing? You know, it, it's, it's a little bit of an unknown there, especially when you're dealing with someone, you know, not to knock any European players because they, they've gotten way, way better, and we're seeing a lot more of that. But it's just a little bit more of the unknown, for instance, like I have not personally watched games of Killian Hayes yeah. in France strictly highlights yeah I mean Killian Hayes is interesting I don't know if he makes a lot of sense for this Pacers roster in my opinion mm-hmm. you know and that's kind of where I was looking at it's like I know that I've always said I draft the best player available yeah but I just don't know if I see a point guard or a center as something of need I think more forward and wing type player makes a lot of sense like especially guards like wings like you know twos or threes because you could always slide TJ Warren down to the four you could always you know, you don't know what Oladipo's future is. Jeremy Lamb's hurt. You know, T.J. McConnell and Doug McDermott are on their last year uh, with the Pacers. So, really, right now, the only long-term guard you have locked up is Aaron Holiday, which they haven't even extended his rookie contract yet. So, I'm not I'm not really sure. But, you know, Killian Hayes is fine. I, I, I mentioned this last week. Devin Vassell from Florida State, uh, he's a guard. He's uh, six foot seven, 194 pounds. Uh, player comparisons are Chris Middleton, Marie, uh, Matisse Thibel, and – Robert Covington, um, he's one of the best defenders in this draft class with the ability to be an offensive threat, incredible hustler, a solid spot-up shooter, and he has a six foot ten wingspan. And I know that that's really helped him with disrupting on defense, you know, chase down blocks, things like that. I mean, Devin Vassell was like, you know, 14 to 20 range about a month or two ago, but has catapulted up that list. He's, he's a, a, lottery protect, or a, lottery, a lottery projected pick at this point. Um, I really like Devin Vassell. I believe the last report I saw on him was the Knicks at number eight have a lot of interest in Vassell. Um, the Knicks are somebody else we talked about that could trade their pick for Oladipo. Yeah, no, they definitely are. I have Vassell in my top 14 without a doubt. So mm-hmm. I have him. I've seen various things where he's ranked as the third best shooting guard in the draft. Some have him at number two. Um, I've also seen him labeled as the most complete shooting guard in this draft between ball handling being a shooter, defender, you know, there, there, there's a lot to be happy about there. Obviously, you mentioned that, you know, I believe he did seven-foot wingspan. You know, he hit four, uh, nearly 42% of his threes. So that's someone that I was interested in as well. Now, given recent history, I cannot overlook this person based on the team, but Tyrese Maxey, um, shooting guard from Kentucky. How many times have we seen now Kentucky shooting guards not really perform that well at Kentucky, but be much better pros. 
Now, Maxi seems like that guy. He's a bit undersized at 6'3 for a shooting guard. Not ideal, but he's a shot maker with a knack for making you know clutch plays, offense and defense. He's been regarded as a winner, which is something that's always very important. And one of the knocks, going back to Anthony Edwards, is actually that he hasn't been a winner. Um, they were saying that he had a losing record, obviously, at, at Georgia. wasn't a great record. Losing record, uh, you know, not a great record in high school. So that's something that, you know, we don't hear about too much. But Maxie is a winner. I think that he's someone who I'm very excited about. Um, he's got a strong frame. Uh, I just feel like he's one of those guys, to me, after seeing Tyler Hero and Devin Booker be much better pros, I'm interested to see what Maxie has. He's got a 6'8 wingspan, so, you know, it's better than his, you know, 6'3, you know, size. I'm excited over there. So I love me some Vassal. Also love me some Maxie. Those guys right there at shooting guard, I don't think you can go wrong with. Yeah, Tyrese Maxie's on my list as well, Fachi. And I think what sold it for me was Kevin O'Connor uh, on his mock draft. I, I, I know that I'm going to refer back to O'Connor's draft board a lot in, in his mock drafts just because I really like his insight on uh, college prospects. But he said um, he's a shot maker with a knack for making clutch plays on both ends. He's a winner. And you mentioned he's a winner. He gave player comparisons to Kyle Lowry, Bradley Beal, and Carson Edwards. And we know Carson Edwards was a beast in college. Obviously, a little bit undersized. I think that Maxie is a little bit bigger. So it's almost like a bigger Carson Edwards. But, I mean, if you're getting compared to Kyle Lowry and Bradley Beal, that's me. Says something. And like you said, the Kentucky guards have been so impressive that you just you don't want to miss on somebody like that. I mean, I, I know that he's undersized, but at this point, I just, I'm going to contradict what I just said because I said I don't think the Pacers need a point guard type guard. But really, I mean, if you think Maxi is that special of a player, you draft him and you figure out what to do with your other guys on your roster, Edmund Sumner, Aaron Holiday. Like, you could package one of those guys in a trade if you have to. But, yeah, I think he makes a lot of sense. I'm going to go with my next one here real quick, Fudge, from uh, Vanderbilt, small forward Aaron Neesmith, uh, you know, considered to be the draft's best shooter. Shot 52.2% from three last season. He's six foot six, 213 pounds. In 14 games, he played about 35 minutes per game, averaging 23 points a game and 4.9 rebounds a game. Not a great passer and isn't a playmaker, but is more of a catch-and-shoot type of guy. Uh, player comps there were Danny Green and Dale Ellis. I know the Pacers could use more shooting, and um, I was just really in, intrigued by his game. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm intrigued as well. Uh, someone who I would like to learn a little bit more about. I mean, I really, as I mentioned before, man, just all the top players that are projected to be lottery picks really missed out by not having the NCAA tournament. I, I mean, agree. how many times have we seen guys skyrocket? I mean, Dante DiVincenzo, someone who we talked about a few episodes ago, that man skyrocketed on draft boards due to his national championship performance. I mean, we've seen those guys. Steph Curry was someone who just was getting so hot come tournament time that it really, you know, he got on everyone's radar. So some of these guys, I don't blame you if you're thinking, you know, who's that? I didn't really see see them much because I think that's how a lot of us feel, that there's, there's good talent towards the middle of the draft, but there is going to be, you know, the reaching. For some players in the top 10, there's definitely going to be that. Um, one player that I'm intrigued about that, you know, this is where being a freshman could could hurt you, it could help you, but Patrick Williams from Florida State. Um, they have him ranked as the fourth best small forward. He is one of, if not the youngest player in the draft, labeled as a versatile offensive threat. He's a shot creator, good screener. He can fill a wide variety of different things, but he's also a little bit raw. So it's basically like, are you willing to, to roll the dice, you know, on someone that has all the potential but is, is a bit too young? So it depends where you want to see the Pacers go with, you know, could it be someone a bit more proven or do you want to take the best possible player and hope a guy like Nate Bjorken can develop him? Yeah. No, I mean, he's a power forward, right? Uh, they have him as a small forward at 6'8". Uh, at 6'8". Yeah. What, what so. range is he in? So I have him right towards the, the back end of the lot up. So I have him yeah. right in like 10 to 14 range. Yeah, and I, I'm, reading, I'm reading his comp here on uh, O'Connor's mock board real quick. He said, versatile offensive threat who can serve as a shot creator or as a screener. He can fill a range of roles, shades of Danilo Gallinari, P.J. Tucker. Uh, that's intriguing. You know, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I didn't have him on my board yeah. because I was looking at different guys and he didn't like really jump off the page to me. Yeah, I think another wing, I mean, wings to me, like that can, 
be effective and be impactful uh, sooner rather than later would be great. And I would love mm-hmm. to see, because the Pacers, you know, we talked about this yesterday with Mark Schindler and Tony East. I mean, uh, I think Mark said that we have a lot of guards and not enough wings and Toronto had a lot of wings. And I think that the Pacers just need to get some more wings. And um, that's why I'm interested in these wings. And I think like bigger guards too, aren't necessarily a bad thing. Like I have Desmond Bain from uh, TCU. He's six foot five, 220 pounds, senior this year. Um, I mean, seniors kind of get knocked, so I think he might drop a little bit because he's a little bit older. But well-versed on offense, excels in spot-up shooting, primary ball handler in pick-and-roll situations, and is a solid um, off-the-dribble uh, off shooter as well. Really good rebounder for his position. Um, unfortunately, his wingspan is, is just an inch shorter than his height, so he's got a six-foot-four wingspan. Not super athletic and isn't a great finisher at the rim, but he does have a super high IQ. The player comp for this one was the one and only Malcolm Brogdon. So if you can get another guy like Brogdon, you know, on the bench, someone that could learn from Brogdon, I mean, why not? I mean, if that's Brogdon's backup and he can be, a, you know, a similar player, you know, and, and help you kind of keep things afloat, that'd be really interesting to me. I mean, I think anytime you can get a super high IQ guy that's been in the league, I mean, college anyway, had a lot of experience, I think that those guys are more plug and play ready than, you know, a 19 year old. Oh, of course. Also someone who shot over 44% from three. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're getting a good three point shooter there. And I think that that is someone that is projected to go right around the twenties. So there could be some real good value over there. Um, someone who I think could be a later pick right around where you're mentioning, you know, right in the twenties area, Josh Green from Arizona, six, six, he's got a six ten wingspan. Um, you know, the description on him is that he could fit into basically any roster. So he, he's a good 3 and D guy, seems like a very well-balanced player. So that's someone that if you are picking around the 20s, you know, Josh Green is someone who probably could have benefited a lot from coming back and have him as like a later first-round pick, anywhere from like 20 to 25. Um, but, you know, looked at as one of the elite perimeter defenders. But someone who, you know, probably – didn't get to have the best season that he would have hoped for because he was a high recruit. He was a a top 10 to 15 recruit over at Arizona. And, you know, just, just feel like, I don't know. It felt like there was more that could have been achieved there, but that's what happens when everyone is trying to go pro right away. And you really, you know, you don't have the tournament. You're getting a lot of raw unpolished guys. Yeah. The back end of the first round. Yeah, I like Josh Green. I think that he is intriguing. Uh, I'm going to drop a couple like late first, maybe like, Second round guys here, just a couple. I'll go through them real quick because I know we're kind of running out of time on this segment. Uh, Robert Woodward, he's a wing from Mississippi State, six foot seven with a seven foot one wingspan, 235 pounds, and then is an incredibly hard worker. Uh, he's worked, you know, diligently on his jumper, which highlights his desire, you know, and to, to, you know, make this league and, and to be better. His player comp was Dorian Finney Smith, somebody I really like from Dallas. Um, the next guy I'm going to go through real quick, Fachi, Elijah Hughes, he's a wing from Syracuse. Six foot six, 215 pounds, 23 years older, uh, 23 years old, excuse me. And he shoots from long range effectively, shot 34% from three last season and around 70% on drives, um, known to be a bucket getter. Now, what I loved was he shot 47% from the right corner three and 36% from the left corner three. Uh, clearly needs to work on his defense, but his tools and frame indicate that he does have the ability to defend if given the right coaching staff. Um, the player comp for him was Malik Beasley. He's my sleeper in the second round. I think he'll go early second, maybe mid-second. And then another big guy that has had some injury concerns is Killian Tilly from Gonzaga, six foot ten, two 210 pounds, plays both the four and the five. Um, there are some injury concerns with Tilly, but like I said, uh, you know, he, he does have injury concerns. But uh, in an interview, Tilly said he believes he can play similarly to Danila Gallinari. So that's, that was interesting to me. He's an all-out hustler who isn't afraid to do the dirty work. In 24 minutes, he averaged about five rebounds per game and 13.6 points per game. Shot 44.4% from three in his career at Gonzaga and 75% from the free throw line while also shooting 60% from the field overall. So I think Killian Tilly, if he can stay healthy, would be uh, someone to invest in off the bench because the Pacers have not had a true power forward. And if he can do some of those things, I think he might be a nice fit next to Goga uh, with that second unit. I would be intrigued to see that, especially in the second unit. Um, two guys coming up that I have interest in, um, both named Cassius, actually. First starting, Cassius Stanley from Duke, 
He's a freshman, yet he was, you know, just finished his freshman year. Yet he's 21 years old, so he's a little bit older, 6'7", regarded as a ridiculous athlete, someone who is, you know, could, I mentioned a while ago, when was the last time the Patriots even had an alley-oop? Well, this is someone who can, he can dunk. <laughs> and it feels like it's been years, you know, maybe since the Glenn Robinson days. But also someone who's not just, you know, a dunker or, or like an athlete like that. Also a pretty good, you know, spot-up shooter. Also a good rebounder for his size. Someone who actually shot over 50% on his three-pointers taken from the corner and about 44% from three-pointers off the catch, catch and shoot. So someone who I think that classic, a highly touted recruit that gets a little bit lost in the shuffle of Duke's really stacked recruiting class where they have about five of the top you know, 20 players in the nation. Another guy for a late pick. This is a, And for Cassius Stanley, I'm thinking if the Pacers can trade into the back end of the first round. If the Pacers can get in the early second round, Cassius Winston is an absolute winner for Michigan State. A senior, this guy, as unselfish as they come, like when I think of a winning like point guard in college, I think of, of Cassius Winston, someone who, yes, he's been around for quite some time. One of those guys that feels like he's been playing forever, but a ridiculously high IQ. He's a smart point guard. Really good three-point shooter, just shot 43% from three. Someone who I wouldn't see really making a big impact at all as a rookie, but someone who would be nice to have and develop over there. A little bit more seasoned than someone that might be very raw and might not pan out. I feel like you're talking about someone who is very gritty, very gritty and going to get it done. And obviously, you know, uh, you know, just just someone who's been around the block. So if you can get Cassius Winston in the second round, I'm a bit intrigued. Where is he kind of falling at range wise? So Winston, I've seen I've seen mostly in the second. Uh, I I have a draft uh, mock draft pulled up right now that has him going 36. Okay, to, so, uh, the 76ers. Wow. Okay, so he's up there because you know some guys like that, like. You know, like a guy like Yogi Ferrell, like who was really good at IU for multiple years, a yep. little bit undersized, you know, but really made that team go. They kind of go undrafted. You know, Fred Van Vliet's another guy. I was kind of wondering if Cassius Winston could be an undrafted free agent possibly. I didn't know where the range was because I've, you know, I think this draft is kind of all over the place. It I, really is. I mean, I've looked at so many different mock, you know, mock drafts and big boards and it's just like, players you know it just depends on how you evaluate a player and what you need because i feel like a lot of like kevin o'connor said this on his podcast he's like this isn't a bad draft it's just not a draft that's full of stars but it's got a lot of good players in it so sure the pacers might not you know get their you know their starter replacement for a guy if they traded oladipo or whatever but i mean they could still get a guy that could really contribute for a long for a long time and i think that that might be something the pacers are looking at like what if they were to trade like you know, McDermott, somebody that's like in like the teens that might want a shooter that has cap space, like, hey, we'll give you McDermott for a pick or, hey, we'll give you X player for a pick. You know what I mean? Like that way they can maybe get off some salary and also, you know, get a pick and get a cheaper guy that might be able to help contribute right away. That's kind of my thoughts on what I think the Pacers might do. They could even move up into the second round if they like somebody because of all the extra second round picks they have to deal as well. Oh, of course. I mean, last year, I thought it was a bit surprising when the Pacers traded, I believe it was the 32nd overall pick that they got from Phoenix to trade it for four, for four second round picks from Miami. So, yeah. and then also you got to remember that they also had those second round picks from the deadline deal when they acquired Nick Stauskas for about seven minutes and, and traded him, <laughs> you know, they, they, got, they got, you know, I think there's two second round picks there. So obviously they included, you know, some of those in the deal for Malcolm Brogdon, but uh, it was a first round for Brogdon, but I believe there might have also been second round pick included in there. Might have been. Uh, either way, they have a boatload of second round picks that they can part with. So I do think the Pacers will make a move and slide up. Now, we're not talking about necessarily sliding up and doing a deal with Atlanta for number six by any means, but I do think that there's good players that can be had later in the draft but not as many great players that can be had early in the draft. Yeah, so it looks like they have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine second-round picks within the next six years. So, I mean, if they wanted to move up, they've got um, two for next year's draft, which might be enticing because we know next year's draft is supposed to be the big one. 
but they do have Miami's 2022 second round pick and their 2025 second round pick and their 2026 second round pick. They have Milwaukee's 2021 second round pick. Um, so yeah, I mean, they've got, they've got some maneuvering they could do here if they wanted to move up. I think that's interesting as well, but they just have to make sure they stay under the, under the tax and they, you know, they don't have to pay the tax. And I think maybe acquiring a second round pick to, to be possibly a role player, like, you know, like I said, like a guy that they could work with someone like Elijah Hughes, who I really like, or Killian Tilly, or even, even Robert Woodward. I mean, if these guys fall and they really like them, I think they should try to move up in the second round and get them because they're not going to have a lot of cap space anyway to sign players this year in the free agency. And I don't expect them to spend too much of their mid-level exception because of the tax situation. No, definitely. I mean, someone that, I mean, I know it's a tricky situation, but a guy who I still cannot get out of my head, Kevin Porter Jr. I loved him so much in last year's draft. And when we saw the Cavs jump up ahead of the Pacers, they paid the money They paid $5 million to acquire the 30th overall pick. And I don't think they regret it at all. So if the Pacers have an opportunity, I'm not saying to pay $5 million for the 30th overall pick or anything like that, but I do think there's something about this year that I think that teams are going to kind of be trying to trade out of the draft and maybe prepare themselves a little bit more for, you know, there's really not a lot of money involved in, in this year's, you know, with teams. I think about five teams really have substantial cap space. So I do think that picks can be had for the right – you know, the right opportunity, and it all, it's all a matter of, you know, if teams are willing to take on other contracts, but I wouldn't be surprised the least bit if they just found a way to acquire a first-round pick, but uh, I don't think they'll overpay for it. Yeah, I agree with all of that, Fachi, so let's go ahead and take a quick break, and when we come back, we will introduce, and well, not introduce, but we'll talk with the one and only, the great, the GOAT, uh, greatest of all time, my man, Chris Denary. We'll be right back. Joining us now on Setting the Pace, he is the GOAT and has been the voice of the Pacers for Fox Sports Indiana for a long time now, and our good friend, the one and only Chris Denary. Chris, thank you so much for coming on. Hey, glad to be with you guys. Uh, you know, I listen to you guys on a regular basis, so uh, nice to be a guest. Oh, wow. Well, I'm sorry. I apologize for that. Um, you have to listen to all of my my crazy trade ideas, but we do appreciate the support. <laughs> uh, you know, Chris, I got to ask you, first things first, you know, uh, the Pacers just hired Nate Bjorgen last week, had the, had the introductory uh, press conference. What are your thoughts on the new coach? Well, I'm excited. Uh, you know, what I know about Nate and his background, his uh, relationship with Nick Nurse, and uh, the last two years, the success he had as an assistant with Toronto. Uh, so anytime there is change, uh, there is an excitement to it. Now, let me walk that back as well. Um, I had a great relationship with Nate McMillan, and it's unfortunate that, you know, that for him that that decision was made. But, but clearly that was a decision that came from the organization, you know, wanting to be better, um, hoping uh, to be better. And, you know, unfortunately, if you look at the last four years, as good as the regular seasons were, uh, it was four straight um, times out of the playoffs in the first round. And now if you go back, really, it's been five years starting with that Toronto series. So, you know, it's unfortunate. You hate to see somebody lose his job, uh, especially somebody that you really admire and, and, and you like a lot. But it's, it's the nature of the business. I, I went through this, you know, five years ago when Frank Vogel was uh, not renewed. Uh, Frank and I had a great relationship. He had been the head coach for five and a half years and assistant for three and a half years. So I spent nine years with him. Um, you know, this, is, this has happened over my career. Um, you know, I think back to the really the first team that I worked with um, was the University of Indianapolis back, you know, 30 years ago. And Billy Keller, the former Pacer, was the coach, and he was let go. And it, it really hurt me personally and individually, but, you know, I had a job to do and I had to move on. So th that's a little bit, you know, maybe longer than you would want. But, you know, from that standpoint, I wanted to make it clear that, you know, I had a great relationship with Nate McMillan, his staff. And uh, hopefully, you know, all those guys bounce back um, in another role. But uh, with, with the new Nate, uh, I just think there's a, an energy that he'll bring. Um, I, love, I love what um, he and Nick Nurse and their staff did with Toronto 
I thought they were very uh, innovative. Uh, I, I loved how they changed things during the course of a game, whether it be on offense or defense. Uh, so from that standpoint, uh, I, I'm really excited and, and looking forward to meeting him. Hey, Chris, uh, the one term I've heard uh, thrown around quite a lot since the hiring of, you know, as you mentioned, the new Nate is a breath of fresh air. How important do you think it was to the Pacers fan base and even the players to get someone maybe a little bit more younger, modern, kind of better able to relate to the players compared to maybe an older coach that had been recycled? I mean, guys, like obviously we heard, you know, Mike D'Antoni's name, you know, thrown around there as well as a few others. Uh, did you think that was really important to the fan base this offseason to do? Well, probably, I assume it was important to the front office because they were the ones as well that made the change. But but I'm sure, you know, it's important to the fan base. A lot of times you see change, um, you're thinking about, you know, positive change. And, and you look at a, a coach like uh, Nate Bjorkeren that, um, you know, had success at the G League, um, you know, really has worked his way up. He was a high school coach. Um, so I, there, there probably is a breath of fresh air. I mean, fans look at things as fans. I mean, they're fanatics. I mean, they're, uh, they're, they're all into their team. And when things don't go well, a lot of times they want change. And probably the easiest thing to do for an organization, and you see it in every sport, is to make a change with the coach. Uh, but we have seen over the course of time that uh, oftentimes that, that can work very well. I mean, I go back, Tony Dungy was as good a coach as there is in the NFL, and Tampa Bay let him go, brought in John Gruden, and they went on to win a Super Bowl, right? Uh, Toronto, as, as we're talking about where Nate uh, Bjorkren was, uh, Nick Nurse was the assistant. They let Dwayne Casey go. Now, granted, they got Kawhi Leonard, but they won a title, and then this year they were very good as well. So um, a, a lot of times it's... It, it's harder for a team to make changes with their players and it's easier to make changes with coaches. So uh, from that standpoint, uh, that's exactly what happened for the Pacers. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure we'll talk about it within this half hour. I, I really like the group that is currently with the Pacers and, and maybe with new leadership and a new way to play, that will help a lot of these guys shine individually as well as together. Well, yeah, let's go down that road a little bit there, Chris, because I think one of the things that was frustrating is I, I think it was like a total of 85 minutes that we got to see that, you know, starting five together with Victor, Malcolm, TJ Warren, DeMontis Sabonis, and Miles Turner. So we really didn't get a fair sample size of what that, you know, combination could do together. And, you know, nothing against Nate McMillan, but, you know, he was kind of set in his ways and how he did things. And I think, like you said, Bjorgren is very innovative from what we've heard. I mean, we haven't really seen him coach an NBA game yet, but he has had head coaching experience throughout his career, which I think will really help him going forward. So, you know, there's other guys too that, you know, could benefit from a new new voice, a new style of play. I'm just curious, you know, what do you think um, maybe, you know, the Pacers could do with this core intact? I mean, how what do you think their potential is? Well, I think they'll play a little bit differently. Uh, I mean, we don't know how differently or is it a lot differently or a little bit differently, but I'm bullish on this group. And, and you make a good point. And, and to some extent, it is unfair uh, to the previous coaching staff because uh, when Victor came back in January, uh, halfway through the year, you know, Jeremy Lamb goes out with the, the ACL injury and then you get to the, the bubble games and you don't have DeMontis Sabonis sprinkled throughout the year uh, was Malcolm Brogdon's injury uh, problem. So you never got to see this team perform the way they were put together. And that was probably the most disappointing thing uh, of the year. But I heard what uh, Nate Bjorkren said, that he's interested and anxious to see the two bigs play together. So am I. I mean, I'm bullish on those two guys. I'm, I, I, I think everybody gets caught up and Golden State created this with small ball. And there are a lot of teams that play small ball, but I'm, I'm not sure that you can't at times play a little bit differently than other teams. And honestly, again, this was under Nate McMillan and the previous coaching staff, but prior to the hiatus uh, back in March due to COVID, uh, I thought the Pacers were playing at that point as well as they had played all year. 
And the duo of Sabonis and Miles Turner together were playing as well together as they've played all year. So, you know, I'm one of those that, again, um, it, it could be a very short time here if the season starts as has been reported that we're looking at a, a December 22nd start, which means uh, draft free agency training camp are really going to be uh, put together rather quickly. It will be interesting to see what the front office decides to do as they move forward. But right now, they've got a really, really good core that returns. And if you look at that, maybe with a different coach, that team will have different results as far as the uh, postseason is concerned. And I think that's what Nate Bjorkren said. He goes, look, our, our goal during the regular season is to build to the postseason. This franchise needs to be more successful in the postseason. So that's one of the things that I think, you know, he will confidently do uh, in the regular season is, yeah, you, you want to make sure you make the playoffs, but you want to put yourself in position that you can advance in the postseason as well. Yeah, I mean, the combination of Sabonis and Turner is going to be, you know, very vital to the team's success. And we just saw, you know, while obviously different players, Pascal Siakam, Serge Ibaka, and Marcus Saul were all able to make it work in Toronto, basically being able to share the floor at different times. You know, they combined for roughly about 13 three-pointers per game uh, and combined for about 37 shots per game between the three of them. Now, not even counting, you know, Goga into the equation right now, do you think maybe under Nate Bjorken we'll see Sabonis maybe take more of a three-point attempt approach? Because we saw two years ago didn't shoot many threes at all, but shot a very good percentage. It looked like the three-point ball would evolve there, but it didn't really happen this year. Do you yeah, think I mean, I th that can happen yeah, this year? Yeah, Fachi, I, I thought at times that, that he shot the three pretty well, but there were times where he looked uncomfortable as mm -hmm. far as should I take this shot, should I pass it, because he's such a good passer. And I think that would probably be a focus that I think this new coaching staff would have is – to make him more comfortable or confident in shooting the three. Um, you know, as a rookie in Oklahoma City, when he was playing the four alongside Steven Adams, you know, he shot more threes than he did early on in his Pacers career. I think they wanted him to shoot more threes, but, but, but he could be like a Mark Gasol. I mean, you've seen all of these players, the Gasols, the Lopez's, uh, Jokic, all of these big guys now can shoot the three. And I think that's something that, um, Sabonis is definitely capable of that. I think he has a really good shot. Um, it's just something that you have to do over time and have confidence in it and make sure that the coaching staff has confidence in you as well. Yeah, so I, I want to talk a little bit more about this group because we saw them in the bubble and they actually looked pretty good in the, in the eight games before the playoffs. And then the playoffs came and things just didn't, they didn't really go right for the Pacers. You know, it was Miami was impressive. Of course, it got to the NBA Finals. But, you know, Chris, you were calling those games during the bubble, even the games before. Was there some drastic change you noticed from this team, or was it just the opponent strictly gave them a lot of problems? Well, I think, I, to me, and, you know, I'll say this, I think one of the issues, if you look at the last two years um, in being swept by Boston and Miami, uh, the, the two coaches of those teams I've always been impressed with. Now, I think most people know my relationship with Brad Stevens. He was an assistant at Butler when I was the radio voice there. So I never worked with Brad when he was the head coach at Butler. But his ability to make adjustments and do things on the fly, I think he's very innovative. And then I thought the, thing, the same thing for, for Eric Spolster this year. And I, I just thought that that Miami team was a team on a mission uh, led by Jimmy Butler. So in retrospect a little bit, that that was a negative for Nate McMillan, that he coached against two teams and two coaches that, uh, you know, I thought were really wired for the playoffs. And you, and you guys said it. What, what was disappointing was if you look at the bubble, the Pacers had some impressive wins. Mm -hmm. I mean, they start out with the win against Philadelphia. They beat the Lakers. And again, the Lakers had LeBron and AD. And they beat Houston. I mean, those are three impressive wins in the bubble and, and gave you a belief that even going into the series uh, where the Pacers are the four and Miami's the five, and most people were picking Miami as the five, that you thought Indiana could win that series. 
I never thought going in that the Pacers would be swept. I mean, uh, if they lost the series, I thought it was going to be 4-2 or 4-3. Mm-hmm. So that was the most disappointing thing was just to see, even though some of the games were were fairly close, there were just there was always a, a feel that the Pacers were battling uphill and that Miami was always in control. And I thought that was probably the most frustrating part uh, of this year's series with Miami. Uh, very frustrating against Miami, but I mean, hats off to them because, you know, they really did go on quite the run, even just going right through Milwaukee. But, you know, as Alex mentioned before, we really didn't get to see the starting five as much as we hoped for at all. So it leaves a bit of mystery as to what their potential could be. And with all the rumors going around, you know, will Vic be, be there really not? How important do you think it was to hear that Oladipo reached out to Nate Bjorken right upon being hired and that they talked on the phone. Nate said they had a great conversation, that you loved the energy that he got, they could feed off of each other. How important do you think something so small like that could could really mean to this team as they're getting started on their next chapter? Well, I think that's really important. I mean, that, that that's the one thing about Victor is, you know, he brings energy. He's He's a positive person. He's first in, last out, uh, usually at the St. Vincent Center. Um, so, no, I thought that was very important to hear Nate Bjorkren say that, that he'd already had a conversation with Victor, and it was initiated by Victor. And I think, you know, Kevin Pritchard talked about the work that he's doing. I'm sure that happened up and down throughout the roster. I mean, this is a very good group of guys. And I can tell you they have a lot of pride, and they want to be better than they were this past season. I think they felt that they underachieved uh, when you look at, you know, what happened in the postseason. Nobody likes getting beat, let alone getting swept four games to none. So, no, I thought that was a real positive that you hear, uh, you know, Victor reaching out to the new head coach and, and them talking about what this season looks like. So one thing that I've been saying for a while is I just, I want the Pacers to kind of get rid of that underdog mentality and let's kind of prove the world type mentality. I want them to be the top dogs and kind of come, come across with that mentality. Like nobody's going to beat us. Like we're not out here to prove anything. We're just out here to play our game and kind of put our, you know, our, our, our name on the map and let people know who the Pacers are. But I, I feel like we always kind of go for that feel good story or it feels like that way for the past couple of years. Do you think that the Pacers can, I mean, do you agree with that? Or do you think that the maybe kind of having that motivation has helped them overachieve a little bit? I mean, I'm just trying to yeah. see your thoughts on this team. And do you kind of think coming from the underdog mentality is always kind of an excuse in a sense to, uh, you know, justify losing? Well, a little bit. I mean, I, I do think it's an excuse. Let's go back. When, when I took the job in 06, um, you know, I, as all Pacers fans and myself, we endured uh, four years of, of losing. And finally made the playoffs. I thought that Chicago series was really important. But if you think about it, to me, in 2013 and 2014, I don't think the Pacers, even though they were underdogs in the Eastern Conference Finals against Miami, um, I don't think, maybe somebody could say they were underdogs against the Knicks in the Eastern Conference semis. But I felt going into 2014, um, and, and that the Pacers were the number one seed in the East, I really thought they had shed that image. Mm-hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, after that, you have the injury to Paul George and, you know, things sort of toppled. But then you were able to make the, the, the George trade and get Sabonis and Oladipo. So I see no reason why you can't get back to that level, um, that, that you are one of the top teams in the Eastern Conference. Because clearly – in 2012, 2013, 2014, except for LeBron James, I thought the Pacers were one of the best teams in the East, let alone one of the best teams in the NBA. So I think it's a matter of building up to that. Uh, I, I do think it, this is a solid group. I'm sure there will be tweaks. Uh, you know, some people think there will be major changes. Who knows? I mean, who knows? Uh, you know, lots of people write lots of different things. Um, but again, as I look at the group currently together, uh, all, um, you know, your main players are all under contract. I think it can be a really, really good team that does not have to, to have that underdog mentality. I, I, I believe that they can be one of the better teams in the Eastern Conference. 
I agree. There's a lot of talent on this team, and we're just getting started here because we really never got fully off the ground last year with what we expected. But as the NBA is looking to kind of take shape for next year, it's been announced the NBA draft is going to be on November 18th, and free agency may begin even just 48 to 72 hours later. Now, we're talking about, at this point, under a month from now. And then with a startup around December 1st for training camp, Chris, in your mind, is this too soon? And do you think that we may the league may run into some problems trying to basically start up a little bit sooner than anticipated? Well, you know, there are a lot of, lot of um, answers to that um, because you're just coming off, you know, one of the most chaotic seasons that you've ever witnessed, not just in sports, but in the NBA. I mean, basically the 2019-20 season was a full calendar year. When you think about training camps opening at the end of last September, October, and the NBA finals ending, what, last week. So um, I, I think the biggest question is, is, is how, how do you get back to somewhat normal and somewhat normal may not be until 21-22, where the schedule is back in its rightful place, October, late October, 1st November start, NBA Finals in June. And probably the only way to do that is to start uh, somewhere in December and try to have your finals in July, and, and then you've got more of a break than you do now. So I, I don't know. I don't think there's any easy answer to this. Um, I know personally, you know, from my standpoint in preparing for games and doing games, um, I would be excited uh, for uh, a December 22nd start and to get back at it in 72 games is what we've read has been proposed by uh, the NBA Board of Governors. I'm sure there are some concerns from the player's standpoint, um, rest and off season and those types of things, but just like you've read with a number of the NBA writers, I can't imagine that there had not been discussions with the Players Association prior to this, because I think as we all know, in my opinion, uh, Adam Silver is the best commissioner in sports and the relationship that he has with the players and the Players Association uh, has been stellar. I mean, that's, you know, let's give them all credit for getting through this past season. So. I have to imagine there's been some pre-conversations leading into this. Will there be some upset people? Sure. I mean, you're never going to satisfy 100% of, of anybody. Uh, but we saw this happen in 2011-2012 uh, when uh, the NBA season, because of the lockout, was down to 66 games, and it started on Christmas Day. And I think free agency <laughs> it might have started December 1st. So somehow they made that happen. If they can make that happen, I'm sure that they can make whatever they want to happen uh, this year as well. Yeah, I mean, I agree with all that. And I mean, I know that like the teams like Miami and the Lakers and of course Boston and Denver who just kind of wrapped up their season a, a couple weeks ago, they're probably a little bit tired, but you got to think about teams that didn't come to the bubble that haven't played since March 11th. I mean, that's over nine months ago. So that's a big deal to me. Like I'm sure these players and these franchises are just, you know, you know, just ready to come back and, and get this thing started. And I know the NBA as a whole, they're just, in my opinion, they're just more than more than ready to get back on their normal schedule so they can own those months of June and July, because those ratings probably were a little bit uh, uh, of, of an alarm for them to, you know, not push a season back any further or change anything like that. Because June and July, I mean, those are pretty down months for baseball. It's the middle of the season no football, and it's all NBA, and I think that that's good for them. But, Chris, I got to ask, I mean, this bubble was an incredible, you know, it's incredible what the NBA did. Nobody tested positive for coronavirus. We got an NBA championship. Yeah, there were some, you know, rough times there with uh, the games and, and things like that. But I, I'm just curious, your thought from a, of a, from a broadcaster, how odd was it to broadcast these games and call these games, you know, from a remote location? Well, it was definitely different. There's no question about that, but it's something we all adapted to. Uh, we ended up doing 15 games, uh, the three scrimmages, uh, the eight uh, restart games, and then the four playoff games, all from the studio at Bankers Life Fieldhouse. And uh, I'll say this, by the end, it, it seemed like the new normal. Um, the thing that I liked about it, at least 
as I followed sports throughout this pandemic and watched racing and baseball and football, um, there have been a number of broadcasters that have done it from home. And it shows you what kind of technology we have now. But I thought the good thing for us was I was doing my prep as I usually do, get in my car, drive down to Backers Life Fieldhouse like I usually do for 41 home games, and then do the game. So from that standpoint, um, it gave, gave me a sense of regularity. Um, was it different not being there? Absolutely, because I tend to watch the game live more than I'm watching the monitor. Now, I need to check the monitor because what's on the monitor is what you're seeing at home, and you have replays and you have sponsor mes messages and all, all of those types of things. But um, so what it limits you to is the ability to see what's happening by the benches, uh, to see what's happening off the ball or off what you're watching on the screen, uh, the ability during a timeout to have one of the officials come over and talk to you. Sometimes we'll even have a coach uh, come over and, and talk to us. So that made it different. And then I think the, the, the biggest um, thing that I really missed was just the interaction uh, personally with players and coaches, uh, whether you're at practice, uh, whether you're on the road, whether you're in a hotel, you're in the lobby, you go down to get a bite to eat, and there's a couple of players sitting down, and you sit down with them for five to ten minutes and talk. Those are the things that you miss. You just can't get that type of information or relationship through Zoom. But we all dealt with it. Um, I think, uh, you know, looking forward, at least in the short term, I can't imagine. I, I don't know this for sure. I can't imagine early on we'd be traveling because – um, as they try to manage and mitigate COVID-19, they're going to try, I would assume, to keep limited travel parties and those types of things. So uh, it definitely was different uh, watching it on a screen, but it is, it, it is definitely something that you can do. And if we need to do it moving forward, we'll be able to do it. Well, making the adjustments is definitely something that you did and did very well. So I applaud you for that. Uh, one of the things I wanted to see if you had maybe any information on or maybe a gut feeling was, you know, the Pacers are scheduled to host the 2021 All-Star Game. Um, however, uh, the league has, you know, let people know that it will not be played during President's Day weekend as initially planned. And with Cleveland and Utah already scheduled to host the next two All-Star Games, is there a possibility that Indiana misses out on hosting the big game? Or, you know, if it means having more fans there, or do you think uh, they'll, they'll still be able to host even if there's no fans? Well, you know, I, I know that the Pacers and the NBA sent something out um, um, earlier, uh, you know, back in the summer, uh, just that the, the NBA had released the hotel uh, number, the room, the room holds for, for that weekend. So uh, there's been no official determination that will be handled by the NBA. I would have to believe, guys, that if there is no All-Star game this year, that the Pacers would just move um, back a little bit. You're right, the next two are, uh, are spoken for. But the, the Pacers, they've been a great partner to the NBA over the years. Herb Simon is uh, the longest-running owner uh, in the NBA from back in 1984. So I, I have to believe that uh, – whatever happens, there will be an all-star game at some point in Indianapolis. We just don't know when. All right, Chris. Well, I, I'm pretty sure I've got all my Pacer questions in for you, but I got to bring up, you know, this month is almost over, but this month is adopt a shelter dog month. And, you know, on Twitter, I posted a picture of my dog, buddy, and I know you, you liked it and commented, but um, you have a couple shelter dogs of yourself, don't you? Yeah, we have two. Uh, in fact, we've had three. Um, our oldest shelter dog, Granger, passed away a couple of years ago. We had her for almost 10 years. Oh, wow. And, and we have Bailey, who uh, is 14. We've had her for 10 or 11 years. And Walter, we added to the mix two summers ago. And we've had him for a couple of years. He's, we don't know his age. He's probably three or four. Mm -hmm. But both of our current shelter dogs were both, uh, they're both pit bulls. Uh, they were both going to be euthanized, and uh, fortunately, organizations were able to save them from that, and, and we adopted them. So, 
Yeah, my wife is fantastic with that. She, she did all the research a, a few years ago. Uh, she, she's been a dog person for a long, long time. Uh, I never had a pet when I was growing up. So uh, when we got married, uh, you know, 36 years ago, uh, we, uh, we, we had a Pomeranian and that was my first uh, opportunity to have a, a dog. <laughs> And so we, we had Pomeranians and we had Border Terriers and we've worked our way up to pit bulls. So nice. Yeah, I, I commend you, Alex. It is a it is a great feeling to uh, to do that and know that you've given uh, a dog or, you know, even a cat, but a dog in particular, a home, uh, especially when there are so many out there that are deserving homes. So any of you that are listening, if you don't have a pet, if you have the opportunity, I, I, I definitely encourage you uh, to go, go to your nearest shelter because there is, there is a, a, a dog or a cat. Uh, they are waiting for you. They all need good homes. Couldn't agree more, Chris. I, um, my fiance and I, we adopted uh, our very own Indy um, from a rescue um, about six months ago. She's really changed our lives for the better. And being able to change her life for the better has just been unbelievably rewarding. So couldn't agree more there. The Pacers were actually nice enough to give Indy a little shout out a while back when they had a, kind of like a promotion of send your rescue dog in. So just a class act for the Pacers and for all you guys out there. Uh, I would definitely rescue, not shop. But at the same point, hey, if you could love a dog, do it any way you can. Oh, yeah, for sure. I echo all of that. And I will say, you know, buddy here has been so good since we brought him in of course it takes a little while getting used to uh, and this is me and my wife's first time really owning a pet on our own so we're learning as well uh separation anxiety is a real thing for these dogs <laughs> and uh we let we let buddy out uh we were like let's see how he does because he's so good with us when we're home so we're like let's leave him out for uh for a couple hours while we were at church on sunday morning and came back and he had destroyed all of our blinds and so uh, <laughs> that you was, learn, you, you yeah. learn that, uh, you know, there are certain things that you, you can trust them with, and there are certain things that you can't. And you said that about separation anxiety. Um, our dog, Walter, um, we moved a year ago. Mm -hmm. And so when we were in the midst of moving, we had to have him in our crate, in his crate a little bit more than usual. And so, you know, before the movers came, I'm moving furniture and moving stuff. And he freaked out because we think that he was left by somebody mm. and he saw us moving furniture and all that. And I think he thought, Oh, here I go again. You know, they're smart. They understand what's going on. And we reassured him, Nope, you're going with us. And uh, now he knows that this new house is his. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Buddy hates his crate, but he'll go in there while we're gone for work. When we're home though, he is, he is perfect, doesn't bark hardly at all, doesn't chew on anything, and just kind of lays around, and, you know, we, we like that. He's, uh, he's a pretty good dog, so it's uh, it's it's definitely rewarding to adopt him, and uh, he's sitting right here with me just listening to me talk, so I guess he likes hearing me. I don't know why, but uh, that's uh, that's my rescue dog little adventure that I've had. I dropped about $400 on new blinds, Chris, and uh, <laughs> I was like, uh, you know what? I, I mean, I just I have to put them up. I can't leave these windows exposed in our house, but uh, – I want to thank you so much for coming on and uh, you know, we, we might be hearing from you sooner rather than later with the NBA possibly restarting in less than two months. Yeah. I mean, uh, we'll, we'll wait and see. Definitely uh, the, the board of governors meeting that came out, at least the information that came out from uh, the Brian Windhorst and the Zach Lowe's and Shams, uh, you know, it's, I follow those guys uh, as much as anybody because they really impact what I do. So mm -hmm. uh, I'm interested to see what happens. Uh, I started working on my score sheets and score charts uh, yesterday, um, updating all the players on their current teams and changing coaches and those kinds of things so that when free agency hits and trades are made and the draft comes, I can cut and paste and, and get those charts uh, up to speed for the 2021 season. But when I read all the things this weekend, uh, I said, you know what, time to get into gear and uh, get the motor going, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll be playing sometime soon. Gotta love it. Chris, thank you so much for coming on a class act and truly one of the best in your profession. Keep up the great work. All right, thanks, guys. Look forward to doing it again sometime soon. Yes, can't wait, Chris. Thank you. All righty, everybody. That does it for another episode of Setting the Pace on 
um, IndieSportsLegends.com. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at SettingThePace3. I'm at AlexGoldenNBA. My man Fachi is at underscore F-A-C-C-I. And we will talk to you all next week. Hope you guys stay safe, and let's go Pacers. If you have a family relying on your income, you need life insurance. But finding the best quote shouldn't take a lifetime. That's where Policy Genius comes in. In minutes, Policy Genius could save you 50% or more simply by comparing quotes from America's top insurers. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team handles all the paperwork and red tape. To save on life insurance and get protection for you and your family, head to policygenius.com today. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com